Tonight, I have two particular subjects um, in relation of science and religion. One is the age of the universe, and the other is evolution. As everyone knows, the scientific estimate of the age of the universe currently is about 14 million years. <coughs> and uh, the Jewish date is 5766. That's a considerable discrepancy. Now, the short answer to the contradiction is that the universe is 5766 years old and God created it looking older than it is. So that scientists, when they follow up the evidence of greater age, are following it up correctly. And they are correctly inferring the age of the universe from that evidence based on certain assumptions that they're making. The inferences are all correct. The conclusion is wrong. Similar to a case where the mafia plants evidence that someone committed a crime and the police use the evidence according to all the correct forensic techniques to identify so-and-so as the criminal. They aren't making any mistakes in their inferences from the evidence except that they don't know the evidence is planted. If it really were genuine evidence, all their logic would be correct. But it isn't, it isn't genuine evidence. It's just planted there. Something like viewing Adam five minutes after he was created as an adult and estimating his age at 30 years of age when he's really only five minutes old. Or finding full-grown trees which may take years to produce not knowing that they were produced five minutes ago. Things were created full-blown, full-grown, fully developed, <coughs> as if there had been a process of development, even though there wasn't a process of development. Indeed, as many of our sources write, the six days of creation are the six days of creation. Creation of everything including nature. It's creation. Creation out of nothing. That includes creating what we call the laws of nature. They're also being created. Creation is completed with Adam's appearance. Before that, you don't have our world. You have a process of building our world. So to take the laws of nature which characterize our world post-creation and use them to analyze anything that was going on during the process of their coming into existence is apples and oranges. It's just nonsensical. Now, first let's note that God is capable of doing that. 
there's no absurdity in the idea no limitation in God's power to create something looking any way he wants it to look a usual reaction is for someone to say why would he do that or to be a little more bold like the otherwise excellent scientist and philosopher Elliot Sober um, says are we to then have a picture of God as a jokester that he creates the world covering up its true character just as a joke to fool us this challenge uh, is guilty of several errors first of all strictly speaking it's not relevant our solution to the contradiction is to say the scientists are right except for the fact that they're using planted evidence and therefore the conclusion is wrong the challenge is why would God do that suppose I answer I haven't a clue I have no idea why God would do that. You want to know? Go ask him. Don't ask me. Does that mean the solution is invalid? Must I supply God's motivation? What for? It's just irrelevant. Number two, and this I didn't appreciate till recently, until one of my teachers, my Moshe Meisman, pointed it out to me. Since God told us the truth, he's not fooling us. We know the truth. He revealed it to us. So by creating a world where the truth is not open to your inspection, doesn't mean he's fooling us, causing us to wallow in illusion and error. On the contrary, some facts he wants us to know by our ability to observe the world, and some facts he wants us to know by telling us. He wants us to be well informed, just not well informed all from the same source. And number three, if we need to, we can easily supply a motivation for God. As I pointed out, it's not necessary. But if we need to, we could do it. By pointing out that on the basis of Jewish sources, everyone has to agree that the world presents a very largely misleading appearance. Because we say twice in the prayers every morning that God r makes the world anew continuously. He makes the world anew continuously. Nobody sees that. No microscope, no telescope is going to reveal that. And it's true nonetheless. It means he makes it new in a way that you can't see that he's making it new. So clearly God has a policy of making the world in such a way that you can't see the truth. No one can deny that. Michal points this out in the Daesh but it's all over and therefore the misleading age of the universe, misleading on the basis of just looking at the observable evidence and theorizing about it without paying attention to what God actually told us, is just part of this general policy of creating the world in such a way that the truth of it isn't open to um, observable inspection. The more sophisticated challenge to this idea is the following. You're telling me it's 5766 on the grounds that God created it looking older. Couldn't you use that technique to defend any arbitrary date? 50,000, 500,000, 5 million, 550 million, 500 million, 500, 50, or Bertrand Russell's example, 5 minutes. Couldn't you say the universe is 5 minutes old and everything was created looking, feeling older? 
Okay, let's agree with the critic that you could. Now the critic goes on. Well, any technique which will undermine all thinking, all theorizing, all hypothesizing, all gathering of evidence, and all drawing of conclusions is an illegitimate technique. It's a technique that will short-circuit all thinking, or all empirical thinking. Shouldn't that discredit the technique altogether? I'm inclined to agree. Any technique that will undermine all thinking is not an appropriate technique to think with. But, that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm not suggesting an arbitrary use of this technique, which then could lead the critic to say, well, you used it here, why don't you use it everywhere? No, I'm suggesting a motivated use of the critique of the technique, which will be limited to a very, very tiny proportion of the cases. Let me explain what I mean by an analogy, <coughs> and then I'll explain how it applies here. Back to the criminal analogy. Someone's accused of a crime, and there is considerable circumstantial evidence, footprints, fingerprints, motive, possession of a weapon of the type that committed the crime. And the defense attorney says, he just says, it's a frame-up. It's all the evidence has been planted. He just says that. Will that be a successful defense? Of course not. Because if that would be a successful defense, you could never convict anybody of anything. Present all the evidence, and the defense will say it's a frame-up and it'll go free. Such a technique of saying frame-up as a defense against any and all evidence is illegitimate because it defeats the whole criminal procedure. But let's suppose you have a case where you have footprints and fingerprints and motive and weapon on one side, and on the other side you have an eyewitness who says he saw the accused a hundred miles away at the time of the crime. So now you have a contradiction in the evidence. And now the defense attorney says, seeing that there's a contradiction in the evidence, I have an eyewitness and you have all the circumstantial evidence, I suggest to you that the circumstantial evidence was planted. Then it would be relevant to check the possibility of a plant because plants do occur. Frame-ups do occur. They're rare, but they do occur. To solve a contradiction in the evidence, it's appropriate to go to the extreme case of a frame-up. And that's what's being suggested over here. The Jewish tradition has its own independent evidence. I'm not going to do that for you now. It's in my series, Historical Verification of the Torah. It's in Living Up to the Truth. It's on my website. I put other things on my website. But the logical situation is we have independent evidence that the Jewish tradition is true on the one hand, and we have the scientific evidence that the age of the universe is 14 billion years on the other hand, and we have the problem of interpreting the sum total of the evidence. What can we best do to make sense out of the totality of the evidence in the best possible fashion? Now I say, given that I have independent evidence that the Jewish tradition is true, that to suggest that the, the evidence of 14 billion years is planted evidence is a way of saving all the evidence. So you can't say, well, you're using a technique that could be used to stop all investigation. Not the way I'm using it, you can't. I'm using it only when there's a conflict in the evidence. I'm not using it arbitrarily. And indeed, when you have two theories, A and B, each with its own positive evidence, and they contradict one another, one of the key questions that we, that we ask is, okay, A has its evidence, B has its evidence. 
Can A explain B's evidence? Can B explain A's evidence? Imagine a case where A and B each have their own positive evidence, and A can explain B's evidence also, and B cannot explain A's evidence also. Then that gives A a superiority over B. It's A superiority. There are other things to take into account, the amount of evidence and all the rest, but it gives A a superiority over B. And I think, I would argue that that's the situation in our case. That from a religious point of view, you have your own evidence in favor of your position, plus the ability to explain the evidence of the other side. You explain it by saying that God put it there. From your point of view, you have an explanation. Whereas from the secular side, <coughs> they do have their own positive evidence for 14 billion years, but they can't explain the evidence in favor of the religious point of view. That's why it's evidence for the religious point of view, because they can't explain it. That I argue in detail in sources that I mentioned to you. So in that respect, we have at least one clear superiority over the secular position. That being the case, this is, to my mind, a perfectly adequate solution to the problem of the age of the universe. I have time for two minutes of questions here, then I've got to go on to evolution. Are we all on the same page? We're all satisfied? Okay. Now let's talk about evolution. Evolution is a big subject. In a way, I've, I've been reading it for many years, and in a little bit, it's like a Suki and the Gemara. All the terms, definitions are in question, and the principles are in question, and what counts as evidence for what is in question, there's very little that people agree on. Mm-hmm. Even the people who say they pledge allegiance to evolution, but they don't all mean the same thing by evolution. Ernst Mayer writes that the word evolution has five different meanings. I mean, it's a pretty big mess. It's a children of ideas and, and principles and evidence. One guy writes a book saying, here's all my evidence for my hypothesis. Another guy writes, all your evidence is really against your hypothesis, not really for your hypothesis. It's that kind of radical disagreement, thinking of the selfish gene hypothesis. Um, so I'm going to do something which is a once-over lightly, which I can do in 45 minutes. It's all based on sources which are available from my website. And I will read some of the key quotes to you here. The basic idea of evolution is this. Imagine something that makes copies of itself. It makes copies of itself almost perfectly. Almost perfectly. Once in a million copies, something goes a little wrong. What makes it go wrong is completely accidental. Undirected. There's no control, no intelligence, no goal. It just, you know, breaks a little. Miscopies, misfires, too much heat. Cosmic ray, who knows what. I'm avoiding the word random because the word random doesn't have an accepted definition and it's not completely random because there's certain other constraints. Okay, but it's sort of random in double quotes. Okay, now you have a thing that makes copies of itself. It's pretty complicated. It's not a, it's not a hairpin, you know. It's not a calculator. It makes copies of itself. Assembles raw materials and makes another one. So it's got to be pretty complicated. Even... The industrial robots we have can't do that. Imagine that in the design of this thing, you just put a glitch in someplace. That's most likely going to kill it or disable it or at, very be- at the very least, do, you know, do nothing to it. Very, at the very best, do nothing to it. So once in a million copies, something goes wrong and either the result drops dead or never gets started or limps or, you know. But once in a million glitches, accidental glitches, you get an accidental improvement. What do I mean improvement? Something that's better at making copies of itself. 
That means it makes them faster, or makes them out of less resources, or the copies can withstand a wider variety of environmental environmental uh, conditions. Or they last longer, they're stronger. So that means once in what we call a trillion, or what the Brits call a billion, 12 zeros, once in 12 zeros, you get an improvement. Okay, so here's us, how, how nature progresses. You start out with one of these things that makes copies of itself. After one, there's two. And after two, there's four. And after four, there's eight. And after, you can get now, see, 16, 32. And after a while, they got thousands and millions. You know, they're building up. And then you get the misfires. You know, quite the misfires die, you know, limp and, 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 and dissolve and so on and so on. And then you get the thing that does it better. Call the first one A's and call the new one A star. Now A star starts cranking out copies, more and more A stars. Ha, but the A stars last longer or come in faster or can survive in wider circumstances over and so on. And the world is finite. Sooner or later, the A stars and the A's are going to compete for resources. And the A stars are better at making copies. Sooner or later, the A stars are going to drive the A's out. Until, until what? Until a double star comes on the scene, 12 zeros later, and then a double star is going to outcompete a star. That's it. That's basically the whole story. That's where buttercups come from, and that's where mosquitoes come from, and that's where orangutans come from, and that's where redwoods come from, and that's where sharks come from, and that's where you and I come from. Everything comes from this basic engine of making copies, having accidental breaks in the making of the copies, and then once in a very large number, the accidental break makes a, an improvement in making copies, and then the new ones drive out the old ones. That was the Darwinian picture. Give or take about seven variables. But that's the basic picture. That's what's called natural selection. Okay, the basic claim here is that the whole of life is generated by this process. Okay, footnote number one. Why should we care about that? Couldn't God do it that way? Maybe they're just describing how God did it. So why are we worried about fighting with them? There are two reasons. Number one, the simple reasons, based on what I told you seven minutes ago, this process takes billions of years. So if you don't have the billions of years, then this process just doesn't have enough time to work. And according to us, you don't have the billions of views. <coughs> Number two, there's a logical point which in all of the science-religion wars that are going on on the internet and everywhere else, I don't see anybody else appreciate this simple logical point. Let's say, let's say you thought God could do it that way. Still, there's a loss if the theory is successful. Because what the theory says is, I don't have to assume God is doing anything. I can get away without using God in my world picture. In other words, this thought, a thought that I'm considering, couldn't God do it that way, all that thought shows is that evolution could be made consistent with the Torah, which it can't because we don't have enough time. But the thought is, evolution could be made consistent with the Torah. Maybe that would be true, but it deprives the Torah of a whole raft of evidence. If evolution is successful in accounting for all the data, 
It means that data can't be used as evidence for God's activity. So it's still worthwhile to show that evolution is a bad theory because once you do that, all of the existence of life returns to be evidence for and, and illustrations of God's activity. So the fact that you're making consistent doesn't mean that there's nothing to worry about, nothing to be concerned about. So, the claim is that with this picture of the engine of generating miscopies and then some of them being accidental improvements, with that you can account for the entire range of life. Now my perspective on this theory is that it is not well enough defined and certainly not well enough supported to be accepted as true. It's in a crucial respect undefined and although there's some evidence in favor, there's considerable evidence against and therefore it's certainly not in any position that a rational person should accept it as true. Could it be true? From the basis of all the evidence that we have, I can't rule it out as a possibility. I can't rule out leprechauns either. It could be true. The fact that it could be true is not a strong recommendation for accepting it as true any more than it would be for leprechauns. Is it a worthwhile research project? I guess it depends on how you want to spend your money. You know, people who enjoy engaging in that project, let them go ahead and do it. But to tout it as already established as true is utter nonsense. And that's what I want to show you. First of all, again, I'll make the point with the comparison and I'll show you how the comparison applies. I have an object on one of whose sides I have painted a red X. Now I tell you, I threw this object into the air three times and three times in a row it landed on the red X by accident. I didn't throw it any special way. It's not weighted. It's not magnetized. There aren't ridges that catch the air and so forth and so on. It fell on the X three times in a row by accident. Do you believe me? You shouldn't believe me. Because I've left out one crucial piece of information. I didn't tell you how many faces the object has. You just assumed it was a coin. And therefore the probability of three times on one side is one-eighth. I didn't say it was a coin. Suppose it's a shilly gun that has a thousand sides. Then you certainly shouldn't believe me. Right? And suppose I say, I refuse to tell you how many sides it has. What then should be your reaction? You haven't given me enough information to make up my mind whether to believe you or not. You say it happened accidentally and you won't give me any probability of it happening accidentally. So why should I believe you that it happened accidentally? I'm not disbelieving you either. You just haven't given me enough information to make up my mind. Okay. So the first thing we ought to do is ask, you believers in evolution, what is the probability of evolution accounting for life according to the way that you conceive of evolution? That's certainly what we ought to ask. Well, listen to Francis Crick. You've heard of him. He's a scientist of some note, right? He's a biologist who worked on evolution, right? DNA, things like that. He wrote a book called Life Itself, in which he writes, at the present time, now that's 1985, but they all believed in evolution in 1985 also. At the present time, we can only say 
that we cannot decide whether the origin of life on earth was an extremely unlikely event or almost a certainty or any possibility between these two extremes. In other words, maybe the probability is next to zero, and maybe it's next to one, or maybe it's anywhere in between. We haven't a clue. Now, I suggest to you, as a philosopher, that something grossly inappropriate about pledging allegiance to a theory which claims that a certain uh, result was produced by an accidental process, if they can't give you the slightest estimate of the probability of its taking place. It's just not ready to be accepted or rejected. It's absurd. It's not the only absurd, but it's absurd. And why is it that they can't give us an estimate? What's so difficult about giving us an estimate? You know what's so difficult about it? Because no one can describe the process. They say, the DNA changed. Well, you know, that's like saying grass grows. How does it change? What makes it change? How fast do the changes take place? What are the results of the changes? They haven't a clue. They can't say, this one changed, and then this one changed, as because of additional heat, or too much saline in the solution, or because of the dark nights and the needed sun for the photosynthesis. Or... They haven't got a clue. You're talking about billions and billions of changes. Changes during ice ages, and changes during, during tropical ages, and changes when the earth was almost covered with water. And No one has a clue to describe the process in any detail whatsoever. So, of course, you can't give a probability of the process that you're talking about. No one has any description of it in any detail. As long as the situation remains like this, which a conservative estimate, I would say, will be forever, (laughs) you'll never be in a position to say, I have enough evidence to say that it happened. Because you don't have what elementary scientific uh, textbooks will tell you is the first criterion of science and that is your hypothesis has to be quantitative you have to put numbers in to say A causes B is nothing how much A causes how much B here the crucial quantity is the probability and no one has a clue now that's only uh, logical error I was, as a logician I'm addicted to errors like that You know that, that really catches my attention but there are lots and lots of other errors as well there is systematic misuse of evidence which shows deep, deep either bias or sloppiness or a combination of both. And in some cases, fraud. I'm going to take you through in some detail the most famous example of evolution in action in every evolution textbook. In northern England, there was a fluctuation in the moths the coloration of the moths. There was pollution, and the pollution changed the trees, and because the trees were changed, the background on which they landed changed, and then the birds ate the ones that showed against the background, and then the pollution went away, and then the, the ones that were eaten made a comeback. You could see right in front of you evolution taking place. Now I'm going to read to you three things. Number one, Richard Dawkins. <laughs> Richard Dawkins, although he makes a big splash, he is a professor of science education. He's not a scientist. That, I suppose, accounts in part for the tremendous number of errors that he makes. He's extraordinarily sloppy. I'm going to read to you Dawkins' description of what happened, which is totally off the wall. Then I'll read to you an ex- an, a description from a much more careful um, scientist and philosopher as to what happened. And then I'll read to you what really happened. 
Dawkins writes, Natural selection can bring about minor changes like the dark coloration that has evolved in various species of moth since the Industrial Revolution. Natural selection can bring about minor changes like the dark coloration that has evolved, dark coloration that has evolved in various species of moth. I read those words. What they say to me is, there were these moths, and they were light colored. And then, since the Industrial Revolution, they became dark colored through revolution because of the revolution. Right? Isn't that what the words say? Okay. Now let's see, hear what the official story is that really happened. This is Mark Ridley, Problems with Evolution. The peppered moth has two types, a dark melanic type and a lighter pepper type. Before the Industrial Revolution, the pepper type, that's the lighter one, was the much commoner of the two. Then in industrial areas, the melanotype, the melanic type, the darker, increased in frequency and become the more abundant of the two. In the non-industrial areas, the pepper type remained the commoner. As industrial activity decreased, the pepper top, the type became common again. It means that no new coloration came into existence at all. All that changed was the frequencies. Which was more common, which was less common. So Dawkins got it dead wrong. No coloration evolved. But the percentages changed. Now, according to Ridley, and this is the official story, uh, in the industrial areas, there was a change because the, industrial, the, the, the pollution of industry changed the lichens to grow on the trees and they changed the background against which the moths are seen and they determined which moths the, the, the birds ate. When the pollution ceased, the lichens disappeared and they went back to the old backgrounds and went back to the old percentages. That's the picture. Someone like Ridley, who understands the facts correctly, says, here at least you see selective pressure. Uh, a creature that is better adapted to its surroundings will succeed. A creature that is less better adapted to its surroundings will go into decline. Right? And that is what evolution pr predicts. Now, that's true. It is what evolution predicts. The only problem is that's what anyone will predict. That's what everyone predicts. No one denies that. If all of a sudden you lost your protective coloring, did, would anybody say that you wouldn't get hit more often by the predators? No believer in God and no believer in the young earth. No believer would, would deny that. How can you say it's evidence for evolution if it's something which everybody agrees? Indeed, what was the name of Darwin's book? Origin of Species. Darwin understood that what we want to know is where new things come from. And if your observation is one in which no new things come into existence, you're not exactly doing the job. Right? But gentlemen, the situation is much, much worse than that. Much worse than that. This, I'm going to read you now, is a, an article by a fellow named Jerry Coyne, C-O-Y-N-E, from Nature. Nature is one of the world's two best science journals. The best, of course, is the American Journal of Science, but Nature is a, a close second, you know, speaking as American. <coughs> this is a review of a book called Melanism in Nature by a fellow named Michael Majerus, published by Oxford University Press, on sale for the cheap price of $125. Okay? Now, Coyne, is, 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 in his review, is giving the exposition of one of the topics that Majerus writes about in his book. And this is what Coyne says. From time to time, 
Evolutionists re-examine a classic experiment stu experimental study and find to their horror that it is flawed or downright wrong. From time to time. We no longer use... Now he gives four examples of things that were once thought to be illustrations of evolution. We don't use them anymore. One of which I'll come back to in Mr. Shemin and explain to you. Until now, however, the prize horse in our stable of examples has been the, ex has been the evolution of industrial melanism in the moth. This classic example is in bad shape. This moth probably does not rest on tree trunks. It just doesn't rest there. The whole explanation was why it's on the trunk and it gets the coloration background and that's how it hides from the birds. But they don't rest on trunks at all. Exactly two moths have been seen in such a position in more than 40 years of intensive search. So it's probably not common, right? Probably not 30% of the time. If two moths have been found in 40 years of intensive search, this alone invalidates the experiments because the experiments were done by putting the moths on the trees by hand and then see which ones the birds ate. But you see, that isn't going to explain the rise and fall and the percentages in, the, in nature if there aren't people around putting those tens of thousands of moths on the trees. Okay. Also, the experiments were done in the daytime, whereas these moths choose resting places usually only at night when the birds can't see them against the background, right? Unless they have x-ray vision. The story is further eroded by noting that the resurgence of the of the moths, the, the light-colored moths, occurred well before the, colon, the lichens recolonized the polluted trees. In other words, the change in the color of the trees is not, is not simultaneous with the change in the percentage of the moths. And that a parallel increase and decrease of the moths occurred in industrial areas of the United States where there was no change in the lichens. So there was no change in the background. Which is supposed to be the explanation for it. Finally, people tried to replicate the experiments and all the replications failed. Moths have no tendency whatsoever to choose a background that matches their color. Pretty bad, hey? Now listen to this, his final, his final sentence. The author of the book of the Occidental University Press finds many other flaws in the work! Many other flaws! But there's no room in the review to list them. This Experiment is in every textbook. It's the key one. As he says, the prize, prize horse in the stable. The prize horse in the stable. And it's a fraud. The thing is an outright fraud. There isn't one shred of truth in the entire thing. Now, this has been going on for decades. You know, when you see a, a mistake like that, you begin to wonder, who are these people that are publicizing this? Where's their independent sci scientific critical analysis, their, um, uh, you know, their skepticism, the, the peer review that's supposed to criticize everything. Now, another example which the reviewer Coyne here mentions is Batesian mimicry. Bates was a guy who thought up the following idea. Imagine you have a species that has a great natural defense against predators. It's very powerfully defended. Skunks. <laughs> you've ever been in the forest and from a half a mile away you just want to get further away that's all right? they have a tremendous now imagine another species evolves to look like a skunk well the predators of skunks aren't you know dumb 
They try to eat a skunk and they get sprayed and they say, I'm never going through this again. <laughs> then they see another one that looks just like a skunk. They'll leave him alone. Says Bates, in evolutionary terms, it's cheaper to evolve the appearance of a skunk than the smell. So you're supposed to find in nature many examples of two species that look very closely uh, alike to one another, look very similar in terms of their visible characteristics, one of which has a natural defense and one of which doesn't. And the second one is cashing in on the experience of the predators with the first. And one of the examples of this was two types of butterfly, the monarch butterfly and the viceroy butterfly. The monarchs taste terrible. Birds have been observed eating a monarch for the first time in their lives and retching. It only takes once. <laughs> a bird who tries it once never tries it again. They learn. Then you have the viceroys. The viceroys are a different species and they look very much like the monarchs. So said Uncle Bates, here you see an example of where a second species, the viceroys, cashed in on the natural defense of the monarchs, evolving to look like the monarchs and cashing in on the fact that a bird who eats a monarch won't eat a viceroy either. Okay? Now suppose, pretend, this is a pretense of something impossible, that you were an independent, objective, critical scientist. Could you think of a possible alternative of why birds don't eat viceroys and a way to test it? Bates says it's because they're mimicking the defense mechanism, the appearance of the monarchs that have a defense mechanism. Is there another possibility? You know, Alice in Wonderland. Is there another possibility of how the viceroys could be protected? Instead of mimicking, getting their protection from the fact that they look like the monarchs? Maybe they also taste bad? I mean, that would do it, wouldn't it? I mean, could be. It's conceivable, right? Could, is there a possible way to do a test to see whether the viceroys also taste bad? Well, I know it took science several decades to think this up, but you know, I think a, a, a child who wasn't inducted into the ways of science would think it up right away. Take off its wings and feed it to a bird and see what happens. Somebody actually thought of that about 15 years ago. Guess what? They taste terrible. <laughs> it's not basically mimicry at all. They have the same natural defense as the monarchs do. Now, it seems to me, when you read about cases like this, you develop a little bit of insecurity in what they tell you. They tell you, we tested this, and we thought of this, we plotted this, and we planned this, and we programmed this. Yeah, that's what they tell you. But if, if, if a Kettlewell experiment with the moths can get through for decades without anybody discovering that the whole thing is a fraud, or publicizing that it's a fraud, and if this uh, this can be done, until, and this was published in Nature also about 15 years ago, the, the reputation of the Batesian example, sounds to me like this community is not so independent, not so critical, not so objective, for reasons which if I had time I could explain to you, but at any rate, it gives me a lot of pause when they tell you something to take it, you know, with a heaping tablespoon of salt. Um, I read a paper not long ago by this fellow, Elliot Sober who really is an excellent philosopher of science, the hypothesis that everything came from a single ancestor. Every textbook will tell you we know that. That's one of the basic ideas of evolution. It's part of what evolution has taught us about the world. All life goes back to a single ancestor. Well, Sober, and the papers available from his website, details mathematically what the evidence has to be in order to support that conclusion. And he points out that the evidence that we have to date doesn't support the conclusion. doesn't really contradict it either. It turns out to be very difficult to get evidence to support the conclusion. And he makes a, hypo a proposal about how evidence should be gathered to try to finally support that conclusion. Something which in every textbook is taken as absolutely gospel, but 
when a careful and well-informed philosopher looks into it, it turns out to be a lot more difficult than it looks on the surface. So again, one has a little, a little uh, distance. Another point. Now it's a point more of, of logic within the within the um, within the system. Do things change over time? Living forms, of course they do. In our lifetimes, things change. Minor changes, but changes. Darwin pointed to selective breeding of dogs, which have produced, you know, Chihuahuas and Great Danes. Okay, that's humanly directed selective breeding, but presumably over a much longer period of time, accidental changes in the environment could could perform the same function. So the basic thought here is this: we've all observed small changes. Big changes are just accumulated small changes. How many changes would it take to get from a mouse to a rat? I don't know, 36. How many changes would it take to get from a mouse to an elephant? 360 million. Okay, but if you've got a billion years, you have enough time to do that. You know? Just give me more time. And I'll just accumulate the, 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 the changes just accumulate and you can get from one to the other. That's the basic idea. It's what's called in the jargon extrapolating from microevolution to macroevolution. Microevolution is tiny adjustments. Macroevolution is gigantic changes. For example, the ancestor of a whale is supposed to be something like a fox. Not a fox, of course. In the same sense, I must tell you this because everybody gets this wrong. Everybody's careful scientists know this, but everybody else doesn't get it right. No one says that men evolved from monkeys. No one says that. What they say is that men and monkeys evolved from some common ancestor. Monkeys are a product of that ancestor and we're a product of that ancestor. But we're cousins. You know, we're at the same place on the family line. They're not, they're not our ancestors. If so, they'd probably be extinct. <clears throat> okay, so the ancestor of a whale is something like a fox. How many intermediary stages would you like for that? 26 billion? I mean, you're talking about a land animal with legs becoming an aquatic animal with fins and, you know, from something about, you know, weighing about 25 pounds, something weighing 100 tons. I mean, it's got to be a lot of, okay, a lot of changes. Good. Is it appropriate to extrapolate from minor adjustments to major changes? Is that an appropriate extrapolation? Well, let's listen to Stephen Jay Gould. He's a believer in evolution. By the way, all the quotes are from believers in evolution. And ex I mean, he, was, he had a chair at Harvard in evolution. Variation within a species doesn't tell you how to treat interactions between species. The phenomena are disparate and exist at different scales. Translation, one is very small, the other is very big. Causal continuity does not unite all levels. In other words, the very little may not be related the way the very big is. The small does not always aggregate smoothly into the large. And he, indeed, was famous for holding that mere changes in individuals is not enough of a mechanism to account for the large-scale changes between species. He cited species selection, which is a different kind of selection, and on a different level. My analogy to this is, who built the pyramids? I have a very unique hypothesis. I think the pyramids were built by trillions of ants working together. <laughs> Did you know that every ant can lift eight times its own weight? 
And you know that they work together. They build these ant hives, you know, with hundreds of ants working together. What could a trillion ants do? They couldn't lift those big blocks, you know, and carry them up. <laughs> trillions of ants, right? I'm just taking the hundreds and saying the trillions did it. That's nonsense because we have no evidence that ants ever work together in any bigger numbers than hundreds. <laughs> you can't just assume that you have a trillion ants working together. It's nonsense. You need direct evidence for it. Direct evidence for it. Well, there ain't no such thing. Indeed, all of our experiments with manipulating species has never taken us to a new species. None of the breeding with dogs got you a non-dog. None of the breeding with fruit flies got you something which was a new species. If you move them too far, they become sterile. So, this evolution is free to say that it could be in half a million years it will work. Anything could be. There could be leprechauns too. I want to know what you have evidence for. And evidence for this? No, you don't have evidence for it. You probably have heard that we're surrounded at present by dinosaurs. Okay, a little exaggeration. The descendants of the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs didn't die out. The dinosaurs became the birds. The birds right? Everybody knows that. Well, Larry Martin is one of the world's foremost experts on the birds of the Mesozoic era. And in the sciences, which is an American good science magazine, nothing to do with creationists, nothing to do with God, thank God. I mean, well, you know, you know what I mean. Um, writes as follows. I began to grow disenchanted with the bird dinosaur link when I compared the 85 or so anatomical features seriously being proposed as being shared by birds and dinosaurs. In other words, the people who believe the dinosaurs became the birds have 85 anatomical features. 85! You see the shape of this bone? You see the, the twist of that toe? You see? 85 different features which birds and dinosaurs share. Now, if you thought there were 85 shared features, wouldn't you be impressed? You wouldn't think that was accidental. And you would say, since we have the birds and the dinosaurs aren't here, and you know that evolution molds things gradually, and carried over 85 features, that's pretty good evidence that there's a link there. Mm-hmm. Says Larry Martin, to my shock, virtually none of the comparisons held up. None of 85. That they got three or four wrong. Out of 85, zero. The moral of the story is, that such poor attention to detail has been repeated with almost every feature cited to support a bird-dinosaur relation. Now, isn't that shocking? Here's one of the world's experts on the historical development of birds, and he says that the community has accepted 85 features, and when he looks at them, virtually none of them has any substance. Now, let's say you think why should I trust Larry Martin? You know, the other guys are experts also. Okay, good. I'm, I'm in favor. So, so it means somebody's dead wrong and maybe they're all dead wrong. But one thing's for sure, it can't be that it's established. Not if one of the world's greatest experts in the area says it's all bunk. Something's got to be dreadfully wrong here. Then you have punctuated equilibrium. Let's go back to the basics. You have this thing that makes copies of itself. You know that a, even a small change is going to be most likely a disaster. But once in, four, in, in 12 zeros, you know, you get an improvement. Suppose you consider the change a bigger change. A bigger change is a bigger disruption. The probability that the bigger change will be 
will be beneficial is less and less. The bigger the change, the less probable it is that it's going to be a, an improvement. You'll have more and more changes. Therefore, Darwin himself said the changes have to be very slow and gradual. Very slow and gradual. Well, the fossil record doesn't show that. Now, Darwin was aware of this. and In many ways, Darwin was a very careful thinker and very objective about the ups and downs of his own theory. He says, anyone, this is in 1869, he says, anyone who trusts the current, the current fossil record should reject my theory. Because the fossil record of 1869 does not support my theory. We don't find, these are the missing links, we don't find the gradual development from species to species. However, said Darwin, I have reasons not to trust the fossil record. Number one, we haven't found many fossils. 1869, how much digging have they done? And number two, the fossil record is inherently spotty. Not everything gets fossilized. Depends upon the conditions of the earth, depends upon the conditions in which the animal dies. So he says, I have reasons not to be overwhelmed by the gaps in the record, because I can explain them away. Explain them away. Good, that was 1869. By 1975, the explaining away had gotten very thin. Because a hundred more years had gone by of digging, many, many millions of, di of, di of, of uh, uh, fossils and, uh, and findings had been cataloged and, and collated, and there's still major, not, not only major, big gaps, but even where the, the species are relatively close, the fossil record shows millions of years of no change and then an abrupt change. The, the continuous, gradual change that Darwin predicted just isn't there. So this prompted the, the, the authorship of a famous paper by Niles Eldridge of the Natural History Museum in New York and Stephen Jay Gould of Harvard called Punctuated Equilibria, where they said the real fossil record shows stasis, the thing stays the same for millions of years, and then a jump. Okay, don't exaggerate the jump. The jump is, let's say, 300,000 years. But you have stasis for millions of years, and then in 10% of that time, a jump to a new, a new, uh, a new species. Right? How come? What happened to Darwin's theory? And the essence of their answer is this. Actually, Darwin's theory is right. All change is gradual. It has to be gradual. It's just that sometimes the gradual change happens in such a way that you won't find it. So it's really happened historically, but you can't find it. Why would that be? So now, originally they made one form of the theory, then it were more complicated. The original theory was this, at least you can understand how the logic works. That change takes place in small, isolated populations. Large, interacting populations have genetic checks so that changes can't accumulate and you don't see any differences. So, you have in the central plains of Africa five million wildebeest. All grazing together and all interbreeding together. Nothing's going to change there for millions of years. Then there's an earthquake. And the earthquake uh, opens up a gap between... I'm sorry, I'm getting the story uh, out of date. Then there's a gigantic storm. And at the fringe of this population of wildebeest, a small group is frightened out of its wit and scrambles over a mountain pass into an adjacent valley where no wildebeest would naturally go. The storm abates and 500 wildebeest are, captured, are, are stuck in that valley, cut off from the main band. Oh, now it's 500. And it's a small valley. The food in the valley can only support 500. This population can't expand. It's a small, isolated population. Now the changes start in, in earnest, you know. 
get the engineers from MGM from from GM in, and they start planning the improvements. The muscles go around, the, the teeth grow stronger and sharper, and the, the earring goes up, and the balance, the balance goes up, you know, and uh, their herding instincts are better, and so forth and so on. And too many years go by, and then there's an earthquake, and the earthquake uh, cleaves a, a passageway between the mountains, and now the 500 new, improved wildebeest are let loose on the plain. What's going to happen on the plain? The new improved wildebeest are going to outcompete the old ones and send them to the grave. Now you're digging. You're a paleontologist, right? You're digging. What are you going to find? You're not going to find the little valley. And even if you found it, the changes take place so fast that in the fossil record, a couple hundred thousand years is nothing in the fossil record. What are you going to find? You're going to find the plains. When you dig down on the plains, what are you going to find? First you'll find the new improved wildebeest, then you'll find the old wildebeest with nothing in between. Said Eldridge and Gould, it's not because there was nothing in between. It's because the thing in between you didn't find. And you didn't find it because it's in that valley someplace. Isn't that clever? Some people have reflected on this suggestion with the following idea. You're giving me a theory which explains why I won't find any evidence that it's true. Is that fair? <laughs> Isn't that maybe like moving your knight three spaces straight forward? <laughs> Is that how you play the game? You accept the theory because you, the theory can explain why you won't have any evidence that it's true? Isn't the game of science to provide evidence why it's true? <laughs> you have, haven't you now shifted from providing evidence to protect you, protecting yourself against absolute refutation, which is not what you're supposed to be doing? Gould is aware of this. In his monumental book, The Structure of Evolutionary Theory, which has 1,340 pages of text and 60 pages of references, <coughs> which I read part of my job. Uh, he's aware of this, and he knows that there has to be something more than just the suggestion that, the, that it took place where you can't find it. And he cooked up some very subtle and sophisticated ways of analyzing certain mathematical parameters of the evidence as indirect indication that it took place through this process rather than something else. Okay, good, terrific, but it saves the appearances, but it's not something for which we have any positive evidence to uh, believe in, and and it's not going to get you from something like a fox to a whale. It's not going to explain the things that come into the fossil record fully blown, like insects. Insects have no antecedents in the fossil record. First there aren't insects, and then there are insects. Not gradual gra development from something else which isn't an insect. Or flowering trees and things like that. They just come in with no with nothing ante no antecedents. Okay, a fellow named Stanley at the Johns Hopkins has a criticism of Darwin that he would circulate in his reasoning. I'll skip that for now. I said to you a couple of times, the way evolution is supposed to work is this. You had the A's until you have a star. Oh, a star is better at making uh, copies of itself, so it outcompetes A's until it's a double star, right? Good. N more than 99% of all the species that have ever lived are extinct. So we've got lots and lots and lots of cases of extinction. To go on, right? David Raup is an expert on extinction. <laughs> what a job. <laughs> He's an expert on extinction. And he wrote a book called Extinction. And in that book he writes the following. The disturbing reality is that for none of the thousands of well-documented extinctions in the geological past do we have a solid explanation of why the extinction occurred. Not one! 
Now, this has got to be the major engine driving evolution. That the better ones outcompete the, 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 the worst ones. We don't have a single case that we can say is an example of this. Not one. Isn't that a bit shocking? Your theory predicts this. It's the major engine that makes it work, and you don't have one documented case. Not one. We have many proposals in specific cases, but equally plausible scenarios could be invented with ease. The only evidence we have for the inferiority of the victims of extinction is the fact that they're extinction, which is a circular argument. Quite right. And Stephen Jay Gould, I don't think I put this quote here, but I'll tell it to you. Stephen Jay Gould wrote a book called um, Wonderful Life, which is a quotation from Darwin, in which he uh, examines the Burgess Shale in Canada, which um, is one of the richest sources of 14 different life forms that arose, and 12 of which died out, <coughs> and two were left, become the basis of all subsequent life forms, including all of the life that's available today. And he writes at the end of the book, if we are asked why these two survived and the other 12 died out, we can explain it easily on the basis of the fact that they were more fit, more, they were better replicators than the other 12. But, he says, we know in our heart of hearts that if others had survived and these failed, we could have explained that too. It means, whatever happens, we can explain it. We can cook up an explanation to fit any of the facts, which means none of the explanations is genuine. And you can appreciate why this is true. You're going to say, A survived and B went extinct because A was overall better self-copier. Overall. You can't prove that by pointing out that it had stronger muscles. Maybe it had stronger muscles but worse, uh, worse um, balance. Maybe it took extra time to build up stronger muscles during which time it was an easier prey for the predators. Every, every advance, not every, but often advances are coupled with losses and you'd have to make an overall judgment of all the differences, what the overall effect, a bottom line estimation. No one knows how to do that. Especially since you don't have very detailed information about the environment. At any rate, the... <coughs> the cause of extinction can't be verified, it can't be established, and therefore we don't have any evidence of it. Now, all of this starts with the first thing that makes copies of itself. Where did that come from? See, here you have some clever scientists, that is, they're clever at science, and not clever at anything else, who say, that's not our job. We're evolutionists. Evolution explains how self-copiers change and develop. You're asking us where the first self-copier came from? That's not our responsibility. <laughs> that's not our job. Okay, let's say it's not your job. But anybody who believes the world is, is accidental and not under the control of some guiding force has to give us an account of where the first self-copier came from. Well, there was an article in the 1991, February 1991 issue of the Scientific American penned by the editors. It was a review article on origins of life. <coughs> the article was entitled, In the Beginning... <laughs> And they surveyed what at that time, in 1991, were the eight going theories of the origin of self-copiers. Eight different theories. Now, a little, a little logic quiz. Is eight theories better than one or worse than one? 
much, much worse because it means each theory has seven-eighths of the experts against it. <laughs> That's a considerable consensus, right? Okay, so what they did was, they were very clever, the editors, they went to each expert believer in his theory and asked them what's wrong with the other theories. And that way they got a long catalog of faults of all the theories. Then they interviewed a guy named Miller of the Miller-Urey experiments of the 50s, which was supposed to show you life to create a test tube. If you want, I could tell you about that as well. It was gross exaggeration. It never led anywhere. Anyway, they said to him, Professor Miller, it just doesn't seem to be panning out. You know, I mean, <laughs> eight different theories and all of which have gross uh, inadequacies. Would you consider the possibility of God? Now, listen to Miller's response. No, I wouldn't consider the possibility of God. We're making a mistake, but we'll fix it. <laughs> we'll fix it. So you acknowledge that something's wrong. It's hard to, <laughs> to deny it. But I believe with a perfect faith that there is no God and that science will solve all problems and we'll fix it. Okay, he has his religion. You know, We call it scientism. But um, that's no reason to, uh, to be... Uh, you know. One more quote and one, and, and one more comment and then I'm finished. I'll take questions for a little while. <coughs> Uh, it has been a subject of considerable uh, um, thought. What about the evolution of human intelligence? In particular, the conditions under which human intelligence was supposed to evolve would account for the ability to distinguish between poisonous berries and nutritious berries, otherwise you die out and the ability to evolve cooperative strategies against the saber-toothed tiger, otherwise you die out, and the ability to uh, create collective um, uh, use of resources, because an animal that's so slow and so weak and no fangs and claws and so forth and so on as a human being, if they don't cooperate, they'll die out. Yes. Certain elements of human intelligence we can understand, social cooperation we can understand. How does that get you to the intelligence that can discern, that can figure out what makes the sun shine and can do abstract mathematics and can do music and can concoct theories of subatomic particles and even theories of evolution. Indeed, they put it this way. If you really thought that the human intelligence was evolved under those conditions, then you would think all it's really good for is surviving under those conditions. Now you see that this human being produces all this other stuff. Would you have any reason to trust that stuff? That stuff is produced by an instrument whose honing, whose fine-tuning, whose programming is designed for this product. It would be like taking your mail sorter and using it to bake a cake. Why would you want to eat the cake if it's a mail sorter? Right? <laughs> it's not designed to bake cakes. Thomas Nagel one of the very best contemporary philosophers and a card-carrying atheist, writes as follows. The advanced intellectual capacities of human beings are extremely poor candidates for evolutionary explanation. The capacity to form cosmological and subatomic theories takes us so far from the circumstances in which our ability to think would have had to pass as evolutionary tests that there would be no reason whatsoever stemming from the theory of evolution to rely on it in extension to those subjects. Seems to me to be, you know, ABC. Okay, now, I haven't given you all the faults with evolution, but
it's a big enough catalog, I think, to give you real pause. Real pause. Now, um, some people will tell you, okay, you're right. Actually, the theory has a considerable number of weaknesses and faults and problems and, in the, and not defined carefully, but isn't it the best theory we have? Shouldn't you accept the best theory you have until somebody comes along with a better theory? The answer to that question is no. No, it is not always correct to accept the best theory you have. Because, let's say you have two theories. One has a 1% chance of being true, and one has a 2% chance of being true. I think the appropriate attitude is to reject both of them. Because neither has enough of a chance of being true to be a candidate. And simply say, we don't know, let's look elsewhere. It's got to pass a certain minimum standard of excellence before you consider it to accept it at all. Now, this is the best one we have because <laughs> it's the only one we have, which means it's also the worst one we have. But that's just a joke. Right. <laughs> okay, I hope that's obvious and I won't have to, um, I won't have to uh, illustrate that for you. Now, um, I'm, I gave this shear to a, uh, about, this was about six years ago and there's a fellow here from Dartmouth. <coughs> and he was sitting listening and he saw he was pretty bored. You know, sort of dozing off and looking around the room. So afterwards, I called him over and I said, it seems that you weren't terribly interested in what I had to offer. And he said, that's true. I said, why not? He said, because I've heard it all before. Oh, I said, where did you hear it all before? He said, I was a biology major at Dartmouth. I just got my BA. And we have a requirement of taking a full year course on evolution to get your uh, biology degree. And so I just spent a whole year studying biology, uh, evolution. And I said to him, what? You mean to say in your course in evolution at Dartmouth, they taught you all these objections against evolution? And he said, yes. I was astonished. I'm still astonished. A university course teaching you the, the criticisms of evolution? So I asked him, and when the course was finished, how many of the students in the class ended up believing in evolution? And he said, a small minority. Correct. That's why it's not taught elsewhere. <laughs> because the professors who are card-carrying true believers don't want to sabotage their political position by cluing their students into the truth. But I think, I think that's the, the appropriate attitude. There's so much against it. There's so much uh, questionable about the, its practitioner's way of presenting things that to pledge allegiance to it is simply grossly inappropriate. And of course, I've said nothing tonight about scientific creationism. I agree with the critics that that's an oxymoron. We don't offer creation as an alternate scientific theory. I'm just talking about a critique of evolution on scientific and philosophical grounds. Okay, questions? What's the, what's the name of the book you're talking about? Uh, about the The book was um, published in 1998. Is that recent enough? And it was published by Oxford University Press. Now, I know it's only Britain, but still, Oxford does have a reputation. And they had a chutzpah to charge $125 for it, so I guess they thought they would have buyers. Right? And it was reviewed in Nature, which is, as I said, the second best <laughs> science journal in the world. 
a very positive review. Coin just gives a list of all the things that this fellow discovered and, and presented and so forth and so on. I mean, between o- OUP and Nature, it's hard to get recommendations better than that. But look it up. It's Nature, volume 396, 5th November, 1998. The funny that all this stuff about Petrobox is taught as part of a course university biology. Isn't that funny? You have yet to go back to university? Yeah. So when you go back, Show them the review of this fellow, uh, Jerry Coyne, and then show them the name of the book. You know, I don't, I don't expect you to buy a $125 book. And ask him, what do you say about this? Yeah. Isn't that in reality, they put all the moths on the trees? The guy who did the experiment, a guy named Keppelwell, put the moths on the trees by hand. <laughs> and then watched the birds eat them. <laughs> and he concluded that that's how hundreds of thousands of moths were eaten in the wild. <laughs> without finding any moths spontaneously landing on trees and people subsequently spent 40 years looking for moths landing on trees and found two in 40 years. I mean, you know, this is, this is fantasy land. You know, if you did this in any other subject, you'd say the whole subject is corrupt. You know, well, give me a break. That's not, that's not serious. Fundamentally not serious. It sounds like people who are desperate, desperate for evidence, doing anything to cook up the appearance of getting evidence. Oh, the world is full of all sorts of slipshod thinking. Don't bacteria evolve in the hospital? That's why they're resistant to so many bac- uh, um, uh, antibiotics and so forth and so on. That's why you have astrogenic diseases, diseases that are caused by the medical profession. Isn't that something that everybody knows? Yeah, but the answer is nobody knows it. Because you can't judge evolution. You can't pr- claim evolution on the grounds that bacteria in hospitals become resistant. Because there's an alternate explanation. The alternate explanation is, is that bacteria aren't identical copies of one another. There are naturally occurring substrains. And when you create an antibiotic, the antibiotic is effective against 98% of the bacteria and ineffective against 2%. So when you start using it, boy, you're going to wipe out those infections and people are going to get better quick. And a lot of the bacteria of the 98% are going to die and aren't going to reproduce. But the 2% are still reproducing freely because the antibiotic doesn't cover them. And they're going to gradually assert their, their, popula- their, uh, their percentage of the population until you have a very large proportion of bacteria that, don't, uh, that are not killed by the uh, by antibiotic and there's been no change genetically at all. So the only way you could test it is to take a single bacterium and then grow a culture. Then all the bacteria in the culture are... The, the descendants of that single original bacterium. And then add an antibiotic and see that it kills part of the culture and doesn't kill the rest of the culture. Then you know something changed. Then you know something changed. Now, I, I've been told that there have been some experiments of that kind. But this irresponsible uh, touting of we see evolution in the hospital all the time when none of it is documented and the evidence doesn't support it. It's just another example of the kind of stuff that they go through all the time. Okay.